The electromagnetic spectrum that our phones, radios, televisions rely on is a scarce commodity. And figuring out how to allocate it in the most sensible way, that's been a challenge for the past century. The way the FCC does it now, particularly when it comes to cell phones, is based on a complex auction process. The idea is to use market forces to make the most efficient use of the spectrum. Now, those auctions have generated more than $200 billion in revenue for the federal government so far. Our next guest is one of the designers of the modern-day process. Evan Querrell is Senior Economic Advisor at the FCC, where he spent more than the last three decades working on this problem. And he's a finalist for this year's Service to America medals. He talked about his work with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Prior, prior to auctions, there were two different ways of awarding FCC spectrum licenses. The first way was what was known as comparative hearings, which was administrative process. And applicants would um, explain why they were the most deserving of the spectrum. And they were referred to as beauty contests. Took a long time to um, get through, and they were pretty arbitrary. Licenses could be awarded based on differences that didn't matter. With the advent of cellular, it just became untenable to be reviewing all these processes by this administrative procedure. So, Congress, in its wisdom, gave the FCC authority to use random selection or lotteries. So if it was arbitrary, why not just among those licensees that were qualified, why not just select them by a a random method? And and they used a um, hot air ping pong ball machine that had been been used in uh, World War II, which was um, closeted right outside my office. So I, I got to see the guts of the process with numbered balls That process also turned out to be highly defective. What you ended up with was people just applying just just to win the license and flip it. And we had like over 400,000 license applications for um, the least valuable um, cellular licenses. So many applications that the shelves in Gettysburg collapsed under the weight of all the applications. So given that it provided no revenue to the government, and that uh, people who had no intention of using the licenses were winning, there was a move to find something better. And I was, I was one of the advocates for the, for the something better. Um, you know, as soon as I got to the FCC, um, I started advocating for um, spectrum auctions as a better means. And I'm not saying that I was the idea originated with me. Ronald Coase, Nobel Prize winner in economics was the considered the father of spectrum auctions, although he attributes the idea to a law student who wrote a um, article in the University of Chicago Law Review. So all these things, there's, there are a few new ideas under the sun. But I think I can say that I made a difference in making it a reality and by applying um, cutting edge economics to it. Yeah, on its face, I mean, an auction sounds simple enough. Most of us are familiar with the idea that, you know, an item is up for auction and it goes to the highest bidder. It is not simple in the FCC's case. Can can you talk a little bit about some of the interdependencies that actually go into a spectrum auction in modern times? Well, you know, the sort of um, traditional auctions and like the auctions that the government had had been and has been using, like for auctioning um, leases for offshore oil and gas, they do it sequentially one lot after another. The problem with that is that um, spectrum licenses are highly interdependent. 
it matters to the, the licensee and to the, to the public um, that you have continuous coverage geographically. You don't want to have um, areas where there's no license. And it also matters that the licenses are contiguous in, in frequency. You get a lot more capacity if you have contiguous licenses. So that doing it the, the, the traditional way, you know, whether it was a sealed bid, which is what they do for offshore oil and gas, or whether you have an, an auctioneer like a cattle auction or a tobacco auction, you do it one after another. And the person, when they're bidding on one license, has to be guessing whether they're going to be able to get the other licenses that, that would be complementary or substitutes. And so that was not a great idea. As part of the, the process for implementing auctions, we had to write a notice of proposed rulemaking, which says, what are the rules that we're going to use for our, our auctions? And, and I wrote the policy section. And while I knew that doing things simultaneously so that you could put together the right combinations in geography and in spectrum was the right way to do it, and I'd written a working paper in 1985, which said as much, I actually didn't know how to do it. But fortunately, Paul Milgram and Bob Wilson came up with a better idea. And their idea was simple, but, but brilliant, which was that all the licenses should be put up for bid at the same time, and that the auction shouldn't close until there was no bidding on any of the licenses. The idea you know, had one flaw, which was something which was with the closing rule that it would not end until all licenses the bidding stopped in all licenses, people would, would hold back like, like they often do, you know, in, in eBay um, things, they snipe or snake in the grass. The problem is that the auction is supposed to be producing information. So bidders will know, you know, what the value of, of the different licenses would be. And it doesn't produce any information if everybody waits till the last minute. So I, you know, I, I raised this question and um, um, Milgram and Wilson came up with this sort of brilliant activity rule, which gave bidders an incentive to bid throughout the auction, because if they didn't bid, they were penalized in terms of losing their ability to, to bid in the future. It may not seem like a big deal, and it wasn't the only thing that I contributed, because it was a, a really a collaborative process to get all the details right. But uh, Milgram and Wilson both said that my contribution, you know, to the design of auction was so great that I actually deserved to be um, included in the Nobel Prize, which I think was, you know, very flattering and perhaps an overstatement. But the point was that you needed to get all the details right. It, it wasn't enough to have, um, you know, this, this brilliant design if, it, if the auction never ended. Yeah, and just to pick up on that last piece, it strikes me that that penalty is a really big deal in this context, right? Because it's not just a bunch of random speculators coming in and bidding on yes. uh, on the on these pieces of spectrum. It's really a relative handful of mobile operators that yes. really can't afford to not be cut out of the next auction. Yeah, well, the, the, the penalty wasn't that they were cut out of the next auction. It was within that auction. Ah. Before the, within that auction, you, you had to put down a, a, a certain money based on the, the maximum amount that you wanted to bid, the maximum number of bidding units that you wanted to bid on. So each license, it was based on, on, on the amount of 
um, spectrum and the population in, in, in the area. So a license was designated by that. And so, so you started out with your maximum eligibility. And if, if, if your bidding dropped below some amount, you were limited in the future to bidding on no more than that. So you had to keep bidding aggressively or else you'd be limited. So it was a, it, it was a, it was a, a subtle but effective um, incentive within the auction. That makes sense. And then then by packaging these auctions, these these chunks of spectrum together so that they make sense, so that they do have, as you said, geographic continuity, I suppose what you're doing there is is creating a package that has the optimal value, not just for bidders, but is putting that spectrum to the highest and best use it possibly can be put to as a public asset. Is that about right? Yes. You know, you said it better than I could. But the, the only thing that I would add is is that, as I said before, um, it's not only geography. Geography is a thing that we can we can see, but it's also in terms of frequency that that you wanted. You, you didn't want to have one block of spectrum here, another block of spectrum there, because the technology gets more capacity out of the spectrum if the blocks that you get are contiguous in both frequent in, in frequency. I guess one of the last things I wonder here is, is it sounds like you did a, a fair amount of adaptation back in the early days. What have you learned throughout the process that's let you refine these auctions more recently? Or do you feel like things are pretty well solidified at this point and you've got a system that makes sense? Yeah, I, I, I think it's been a, a process of, of constant innovation. But um, there was some what I would consider minor issues of bid signaling. One, one of the things that we did was we went to anonymous bidding because we wanted to prevent people from, you know, tacit collusion. And, and, and when they knew who the other bidders were, it was possible by making bids and they used the, the, the trailing digits, the last, you know, they, they you were able to bid down to the dollar. And so, so bidders, you know, would put down information in their bid. And since, since everything was transparent, other bidders could know what was going on, and it, and it seemed possible to um, collude. So what we did was we went to anonymous bidding. You just see the bids, but you don't know who's doing. That that was you know one of the adaptations. But I think the most revolutionary was in in our auctions is we also developed a two sided auction, or at least, and that actually was an idea that I came up with, which was to allow not only like the wireless operators to buy spectrum, but the incumbents, in this case, um, broadcasters who had more spectrum than really was appropriate you know, for the public use to um, sell their spectrum in the, in the same auction. So that was, you know, like a, I think it's, it was a, a revolutionary change in, in spectrum policy because traditionally it's an administrative process that determines how much spectrum would be reallocated from a less valuable to a more valuable use. With, with the broadcast incentive auctions, it was a two-sided auction where we used markets to determine how much spectrum was going to go to the new higher value use, which licensees would get it, how much they would get um, paid for it. Sorry, one last thing, because your point about anonymity raised another thing in my head, which is, I guess if, you're, if you weren't careful about this, you could, you could design a spectrum package in a way such that it is more valuable to one incumbent than another, 
and you would figure out pretty quickly who the bidders are. So it's part of this designing a package that is going to be of equal value no matter who ends up winning the, the auction? Okay, there's, there's always a question of, you know, how you divide up the, the spectrum in, 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 into licenses. But generally what we've done is to divide it up into relatively small pieces where the bidders are the ones that, that, that create the packages, both in geography and in frequency. And because it's anonymous, you, nobody knows what the packages are that other people are, are putting together with, you know, when, you, when it was perfectly transparent, we had an intermediate step in transparency where we didn't say who it was, but we, we would just identify some bidder and you could see which packages people were putting together. And, and then that was a problem. So we went to complete anonymity. So, you know, you, you, you should be on our team. You have great questions. It was, it was, it was, it was a big debate from, from day one in the auction design. And um, the manager of the whole process, I had argued for anonymity from, from the get-go, but the manager's concern was it's really hard to keep things anonymous in government. And he didn't want a scandal, you know, where it leaked out, you know, somebody, you know, knew and somebody else didn't know. So it just sort of seemed in terms of, you know, good government and uh, avoiding scandal that we should just make everything open and not have, you know, people trying to get the information. But it turned out it, it created problems. So eventually we got to the anonymous bidding. Evan Querrell, Senior Economic Advisor at the FCC and a finalist in this year's Service to America medals, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Find this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tune into the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? 
my style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, 
um, from C to C suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.